0: You could like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, F-P-B-P, stand for free the Black Panthers, and up the black police, feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but so we still here in the bill head of Pro. show, they got me started, lying hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja First in groups, Usaba Let's bring back the black families We need our father Single mama, son and daughter That's root of the problem Wise up, we wise up Unity so powerful Black banks, black schools Black on black power moves You telling lies televised black power be scared guys that be standing there like they paralyzed huh? we say for the system cause we above the system we keep ar's and pistols shotguns that's worth the crystal
1: but that's for self-defense make sure we have no issues be sure to leave it
0: at the door if you have it with you this for them freedom fighters that lost they freedom until they freedom we screaming coffee diem this for the general King Khalid Muhammad We gon' make your day a holiday I fuck okay, me, i Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, Stand for Free the Black Panthers It's up the Black Police That 13th Amendment Tryna make a slave of me You can like my body, can't trap my mind Not to ever be free, okay Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, Stand for Free the Black Panthers It's up the Black Police Feds infiltrated our movement for black leadership roles, but we still here. Been a bill here, up coin tail bro. RBG, R.B.G., 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 R.B.G. Rbg My sisters, my brothers, the counselor, the elders, cause that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black women and goddess regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny, foolish stuff. Don't tolerate it, melanated, so you gotta hate it. But rock up another conversation, Trump finna get inaugurated. Damn, unify or die, NBPP.org.
2: We have a, a, a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prison. We have 50%
0: unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prison. The 13th Amendment said you could not be
3: made a slave or indentured servant unless you could apply. Amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in
2: that.
3: We need our own nation.
4: Good day and welcome to Letters and Politics. I'm Mitch Jezerich. The California State Legislature will soon receive California's task force to study and develop reparation proposals for African Americans. The commission spent two years investigating and analyzing racial gaps in health, wealth, housing, education, and employment that affect black Californians. Some of the task force's recommendations include investing in black communities, black businesses, education, police reform, and other such things. It also includes a recommendation for direct cash payments to black Californians that reportedly could be potentially as high as $1.2 million for each person. Some of these recommendations could be turned into bills as early as the end of the month. Governor Gavin Newsom, who supported creating the commission, said in a recent statement that, quote, dealing with that legacy is about much more than cash payments. Don't know exactly what that means. However, uh, he has yet to endorse or even oppose any of the recommendations. He says he will wait until the report is officially uh, handed to the state legislature. The direct cash payment, again, which is just one of many proposals, could cost the state some eight hundred billion dollars. Well, today we're going to be in conversation about reparations, its history, what's happening right now, and its future. My guest for this is William A. Darity Jr. and A. Kirsten Mullen. William A. Darity Jr. is a Samuel Du Bois Cook Professor of Public Policy, African and American, African American Studies and economics, and founding director of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. And A. Kirsten Mullen is an independent scholar. She's also a folklorist and founder of Artifactual, which is an art consulting practice, and Carolina Circuit Writers, a literary consortium that brings expressive writers of color to the Carolinas. Together, they are both contributors and editors of the book called The Black Reparations Project, a handbook for racial justice. It is a product of The Black Reparations Project, Which represents a collective work of the Reparations Planning Committee, which is a group of about 20 scholars. Kristen Mullen and William Darity, it is my very good pleasure to welcome you both to this
5: program. Thank you. Thank you
4: very much. I should say from the, right from the beginning, you, you've, you've worked as consultants, uh, to this California Commission that has studied for uh, reparations. So we'll, we'll, we'll see if that puts you in a funny spot in, in talking about it, but, um, you know what? What the thing that stands out to people is 1.2 million dollar cash payments um, to to individuals. Does, should that be seen as high, or should that be seen as about right?
2: Um, let me say first, we're pro bono consultants to the California Department of Justice and to the reparations Task Force. Um, I, I think the que- the question should probably be different, <laughs> not. Whether or not 1.2 million dollars is high or low, but does the state of California have the capacity to pay a reparations bill of that size? Um, you know, for for us, the culpable and the capable party for paying reparations to Black Americans since U.S. slavery is the federal government. Um, you know, we don't believe that states and municipalities uh, should be uh, taxed. You know, should be on the hook for these these payments. Um, they they can't afford to pay them, uh, their budgets are too small, and you know we also believe that the federal government is the responsible party, and that they should pay the bill, not states and municipalities.
6: Yeah, the uh, total budget I think for the state of California is in the vicinity of three hundred billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, the amounts that we have seen put forward as overall calculations of what might be paid on the basis of the tentative report that the task force has put forward uh, have ranged from $200 billion to $800 billion. Um, I, I've seen folks say that it would be feasible for the state to pay it if it did so over a long period of time. Uh, I've even seen uh the organization called Liberation Ventures propose that it might be fifty years uh and they talk about a five hundred billion dollar figure but if you uh if you were to to distribute that equally in real dollars over a fifty year period, you're talking about a ten billion dollar expenditure per annum and uh I, I, and that would mean uh very very small payments individuals on an annual basis, uh, I don't think they would be transformative so uh, it's it's just very very difficult for states and localities to meet an expense of this type. Uh, I think I think that the calculation of the total budgets for all state and local governments in the United States uh, and that's 108,000 pounds in cities right. maybe and fifty states comes to uh, less than five trillion dollars. Uh, and our focus is on uh, an objective of eliminating the racial wealth gap in the United States. And we we can talk a bit more about why that's our, our focus. But we estimate that that would require at least $14 trillion in expenditure. Uh, and so there's just absolutely no way in which the states and local governments could, could meet that bill. Do you feel that
4: the states and local governments, because there's other local governments that are are also exploring uh Reparations. Do, do you feel as though that takes away from the push of getting the federal government
2: to do reparations? Or, or maybe the federal I mean, government, our, yeah. I mean, that's our view. when We don't know for a fact, but you know, we can imagine a, a scenario in which people would say, you know, opponents of reparations would say, well, you've got this project in California, you've got this project in, in Illinois, you have that, the housing voucher program in Evanston. You don't need a national program. But as Sandy said, you know there are over 108,000 cities in the United States. Are all of them going to enact some kind of reparations program? Uh, and already, you know, when you're looking at the two dozen or so programs that are that are in motion, they're not identical. Um, you know, what they're calling reparations varies greatly. Um, you know, some of them are talking about, as I mentioned, Evanston, Illinois, a housing voucher program that is masquerading as reparations. Some of them are suggesting that um, funds be set aside to assist with the identification of historic structures that have significance for Black, black people. Um, they vary tremendously in terms of uh, you know what their goals are and who they even target. Asheville, North Carolina, uh, for example, has a reparations project that t- that focuses on minorities. You know, not Black American descendants of U.S. slavery at all, not specifically. So, you know, we just don't feel that these projects are adequate in terms of their scope, and they absolutely are inadequate in terms of their budget because they're not designed. I don't know of a single one that's designed to eliminate the racial wealth gap, which for us is really essential to true reparations.
6: I mean, there's a host of things that states and localities can do to make conditions better, uh, but we don't think that they can collectively or individually do enough to meet the demands of elimination of the racial wealth gap in the United States. And uh, insofar as that's the case, we wish they would not call these types of initiatives reparations. Uh, You know, we'd be perfectly content if they said they were undertaking something that you might label a racial equity initiative. Uh, But there's a, a certain presumptuousness associated with the use of the term reparations uh, because of its moral significance uh, and because of its historic significance in terms of the record of the United States of America. And so um, we wish that these piecemeal initiatives at the state and local level and even individual private actors uh, you know, would not would not claim that what they're doing is is, yeah. is, is, is reparations. When, when you say private
4: actors, do you mean sort of corporations that were involved in, in labor? or even individuals, or
6: colleges and universities, universities, or
4: churches, cultural institutions? Yes. Yeah. You're not against them doing doing certain actions, just you're against them calling it reparations. Is
7: right. Right. Exactly. Right.
4: Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, it's an important point. What, what is reparations? When we have the national dialogue over reparations, we, we talk about it in many ways. And, and, and one way we talk about it is, well, reparations should be greater investment in black communities and education. And actually, many of these recommendations that the, the, the commission in California came up with. But, but what for you is reparations?
2: I mean, well, I mean, you know, we're talking about acknowledgement, um, redress. redress and closure, you know, for a grievous injustice. Um, you, know, uh, you know, for conveniently, you know, you, it's the, mm-hmm. seminum, the, acronym, the acronym ARC, A-R-C. So we're talking about, um, you know, in terms of acknowledgement, this is referring to the perpetrators of the harms or the atrocities admitting that they were the culpable parties, right? And, is that an um, apology?
8: It would be, it would be an, an apology, apology.
2: Although, you know, we have had apologies already um, but we've not had apologies that were coupled with an admission of responsibility. responsibility. That's, it's a and, declaration that's huge. of responsibility that's huge. crucial. And so this is where the restitution, you know, would come in. Um, but, you know, so redress, you know, is that formal act of restitution. Um, you know, historically, um, members of victimized communities have been awarded monetary, um, um, you know, prizes, monetary grants, um, for that, for those harms, and we don't think that that should be any different today. Um, you know, this was certainly the case when um, uh, Holocaust victims were um, granted uh, reparations. This was the case when Japanese Americans were granted reparations uh, for their unlawful internment in the United States, and so we don't think it should be any different in the United States. Uh, it should, this should be any different. Let me start that again. We know that you know, reparations were paid to, you know, victims of the Holocaust. And and they continue to be paid, actually, uh, not only by Germany, but by the U.S. government, even though the U.S. government was not a perpetrator of those harms.
4: United um, States pays in the Holocaust well, reparations?
2: I, I, I didn't know that. That is that is correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, in fact, uh, they were increased to to, during the period of COVID. Yeah, to,
6: uh, to victims and, and to their, their descendants in, who
2: are U.S. citizens. citizens.
6: Yeah. Um, yeah.
2: So many people are aware that the United States also you know, has contributed to 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 those payments. Um, but, but also the uh, United States government's paid reparations to Japanese Americans who were uh unlawfully interned in the United States. Um, you know many people aren't aware that the US government is also paying reparations to Americans who were held hostage in Tehran, Iran in 1979, 80. Um, and those, what is it, fifty-two um, hostages are receiving reparations from the U.S. government um, of $10,000 per day, per day of captivity. So that's about $4.4 million each. So we definitely have a precedent for it. Um, you know, people just begin to balk and drag their feet when the potential recipients of payments for atrocities and harms committed against them are black Americans of us slavery. So then lastly, you know, closure um, you know, means that uh, the culpable party and the um, the party that was subjected to these atrocities and harms would agree that the terms for redress have been met, and the idea then would be that the um, the party, the victimized party, would not bring any additional claims to the federal government, to the U.S. government, unless there is a renewal of some of the old harms. Uh, or new ones are inflicted upon them.
4: A lot there. I want to unpack. Let me begin with the apology. The United States has apologized for slavery, right? But and without they, the they,
2: other they, part. Yes, they're very careful not to acknowledge, uh, you know, responsibility for. You know, Sandy mentioned, um, mm-hmm. you know, nearly a hundred years of massacres that were directed at you know, black people between Reconstruction and the end of World War II that, you know, that resulted not only in the loss of black lives, but the appropriation of black people's property, you know, which further increases the racial wealth gap.
6: Yeah, um, the um, the United States House of Representatives and the United States Senate have issued apologies uh, for slavery. But the... Um, the Senate apology is specific in saying that this is not a commitment to provide any form of restitution, and, uh, and 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 correspondingly, there is no statement of responsibility for the history of atrocities on the part of the United States government uh, in in either apology. So, um, you know, and, and, and given the fact that, that it is, it's United States law that made slavery legal, it's United States law that made segregation legal for close to a century, uh, it's United States law that introduced the Homestead Act of 1862 that gave uh, 160 acres of land to one and a half million white American families uh in the latter part of the uh, 19th century and the first part of the 20th century 160 acre land grants where um the uh the social scientist trina william shanks estimates that there are now 45 million living white americans who continue to be beneficiaries of these land patents that were received and at the same time the federal government reneged on its commitment to provide 40-acre land grants to the newly emancipated. And so we argue that that's the beginning of the contemporary racial wealth divide between blacks and whites, the fact that the federal government gave a substantial asset in the form of land to a large number of white Americans. In fact, we estimate that somewhere in the vicinity of 10 to 12% of the white population in the United States received uh, these land patents from the federal government.
2: That was like 1.5 million white
6: households yeah. at the time. And, 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 and then on the other hand, I think the, the, the upper bound estimate of the total number of black Americans, mm-hmm. not families, but individuals, who had access to some form of land patent from the federal government amounted to about twenty thousand people, uh, and that's out of four million individuals who were newly emancipated at the end of the Civil War. So less than one percent.
4: Right. Yeah, now this, this Olmst- comparing it uh, reparations and the forty acres to the Homestead Act is pretty mind blowing.
6: Yeah,
2: I mean it's fascinating to me that. Because the you Homestead know, Act happened evidently, after, evidently, right? Evidently, you, I certainly was not taught, you know, I was not introduced to those two things, those two federal policies side by side in high school or his, for college classes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, you know, they're they're right there together, 1862 with the Homestead Act, and you've got emancipation at 1865. So, you know, I think I think I and many others would have had a very different um, kind of lens to, you know, to, to examine all of this if we had understood those two policies, those two federal policies, you know, pretty coexisted and what the implications of those policies, you know, is today. I mean, you know, um, approximately 45 million white individuals are benefiting from that single government policy today. Uh, You know, the last uh, land uh, patent was made in 1980. So you know that legislation carried for over a century. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's just extraordinary. You know, in one um, you know one uh, one data point, uh, this is uh, our colleague uh, Jennifer Mueller. It's pretty dramatic. Uh, data point. Yeah, she, um, you know, asked her students at Texas A&M University to you know interrogate their family's wealth position. You find out where does the money come from in your family. And I think many of the students had a story of, you know, this individual or that individual who was, you know, incredibly persevering or, you know, had some innovation or a patent, you know, someone who, you know, put in a lot of sweat equity, and that's where the money came from. And while, you know, we don't doubt that that was the case, you know, we would also think, you know, do some research and find out exactly, you know, when and how the federal government intervened on your family's behalf. So, uh, in fact, fully 25% of her students, about 150 students, found evidence of uh, a land grant. Um, And then an even higher percentage, you know, closer to like over 80% of them had evidence of GI Bill, which there, and in some cases more than one, and G- a single, no benefits from to buy a house. house, to buy a know, house. Yeah. In many cases, uh, they had more than one individual, you know, across their family who had been able to purchase uh, a home uh, as a consequence of support from the federal government, um, and zero, zero non-white students had a, a home back, uh patent. In her class. Well, so, the, oh, oh, but the yeah, example sorry. I was going to share was once. Stu- <coughs> excuse me. No. One student whose family had been given land in the Panhandle of Texas. That's a, a, that, that sort of rectangle at the top of 26 counties um, in 1880. And you know, this is land that they could, you could live on the land, you could subdivide the land, you could lease it, you could borrow against it. Um, but any of the natural resources on the land were yours to mm-hmm. use, to sell. Um, you know, any 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 uh, any uh, woodlands could be claimed as lumber. Uh, any any wildlife, uh, water rights, mineral rights, etc. Uh, they decided that they would lease the land, so immediately they're receiving a revenue stream from this um, homestead Robbery. property. Yeah. All right. So, so, sometime later, the patriarch dies, and his widow decides to move with their eight children to Austin, Texas to give the children a better opportunity uh, of going to college. So they move to Austin. Six of the eight um, receive college degrees, uh, debt-free because they can afford to pay for college. Um, then the matriarch dies, and the eight children decide to continue to lease the land and split the profits eight ways. Right. So moving forward, To 1980, they still own the land and natural gas is discovered on the property and the deposits are so rich that in the first year alone, the profits were over $100,000. So you have this example of this, you know, this individual family basically receiving, you know, free equity from the federal government. I mean, it's a handout. It's a free handout from the federal government. You know, we're not against, uh, handouts, but we just think that they should be, um, equitably disperse. Um, and so this opportunity to have an asset that was provided by the federal government is something that white Americans have and that black Americans did not get. You know, never mind that the black uh, newly emancipated people were uh, promised 40 acres versus 160, but they didn't get the 40. Um, you know, they didn't have this opportunity to accumulate wealth over generations. And we know that's how wealth it, it, you know, it's created. It's not just, you know, what an individual can um, can amass in their lifetime. It's, what did your parents, what did your grandparents, or great-grandparents amass and what did they pass down to you?
6: Yeah, I'd to go back to Kirsten's comment about the GI Bill.
2: Yeah, interesting uh, link,
4: right, from homestead to GI Bill because GI Bill is also well, right a time know, of redlining.
6: Yeah. Right,
2: right. You know, so you go from, you know, helping white people become, uh, you know, Middle class and upper class with land acquisition, and then we switched to the acquisition of a home that's yeah
6: yeah that and that's the big shift the The federal government's asset building program in the nineteenth century involved land distribution as it completed its colonial settler project in the western territories uh but in the twentieth century, its asset building focus shifted to home ownership uh But, you know, as Kirsten suggested, that was conducted in a highly discriminatory fashion. Uh, Initially, under the auspices of the New Deal, you had the introduction of the Federal Housing Administration, and it's the Federal Housing Administration in a public-private partnership with local banks that conducted the redlining scheme, which essentially starved black potential homeowners from credit. And then uh, then the GI Bill is introduced uh, as, as a means of providing support to returning veterans after World War II, and the home-buying provisions were executed in a highly discriminatory fashion so that you built a middle class in the United States dramatically from that piece of legislation, but you built a middle class that was... Well, white middle class right. in the United States. Right. And so um so again, you could think about this as another type of Correct. handout, yes. if you will. Yeah. Uh, but
2: I Ara mean, katz Eric Caps Nelson, sociologist, calls it affirmative action for white people. Yeah. You know, he, he looks at Mississippi, uh, specifically and um with know, the New Deal, right? 40, yeah. Yeah. Nineteen forty nine. Um something like thirty nine hundred um Uh, benefits were made for white GIs. I'm sorry, were made for GIs in the state, a little over 3,900. Two of those, two out of nearly 4,000, went to black GIs in the entire state. So, you know, it wasn't even, you know, it's not even, you know, it's not even close um, the kinds of benefits, uh, opportunities that were made available for black people. And the northern story is not not all that that much better. The, The numbers are much higher you know, closer to 100,000 uh, white GIs uh, in 1949, but the number of, you know, non-white GIs is closer to 1,000. So you're still talking about 1% or less than 1%. Actually, it's less than that in Mississippi. Yeah.
4: So. yeah. This is Letters of well, well, Politics. And we fact, are percentage
2: of 1% in it's Mississippi. It's negligible yeah. in Mississippi. Yeah. <laughs>
4: Yeah. Let, let me yeah. let everyone know who we're talking to. This is Letters in Politics, and today we are in conversation with William Darity Jr. and A. Kirsten Mullen. Together, they are both editors and contributors to a book called "The Black Reparations Project: A Handbook for Racial Justice." Let me let me dive in history now and ask about the promise of. Forty acres. Oftentimes we hear it as forty acres and a mule. I'll let you clarify if that's what it actually was. Where,
2: where does this promise come from? So this is part of uh, General Sherman, William Sherman's Special Field Order Number Fifteen. Um, you know, the, the mule, which is not specified in the order, um, but we referred to, you know, a farming animal. You know, um you know, in fact, uh, what was discussed. Uh, in the correspondence, uh, it's all correspondence was, you know, seeds, um, you know, tools, but they are not specified in the field order itself. So this was land that had been formally, uh, owned by the, the, the Confederates. Uh, you're talking about a 30 mile swath of land that stretched from the, the Sea Islands of South Carolina all the way across to the St. Johns River in Florida. Um, you know, this is land that uh, would have been, you know, occupied, you know, publicly, you know, exclusively by black people. So this would have been the moment when, you know, black people would have had, um, you know, an opportunity to become, full, you know, full citizens in the United States. Um, you know, if they had been um, protected by, uh, you know, allowed to have these, these uh, 40-acre mangers, and then it was like a, a maximum of 40 acres. Uh, everyone uh, probably would not have received the well,
6: well, the Homestead Act said a maximum of 160, uh, so, a lot of so people, it was kind of they, implicitly understood that you'd get that amount. But well, uh, that was
2: not necessarily the Well, no,
6: no. Uh, under Sherman's order,
2: yes. Sherman's the
6: initial allocation that was made was 400,000 oh, acres, acres to right. 40,000 right. individuals. Which is ten acres per person, and if you yeah. think about a family being approximately four you people, your, that's, how the 40 that's that's would your they, they, they were getting forty acres, yeah. but uh, but the the total amount of land that was designated under special field orders much, much thing, was five point three million acres. Yeah, so so,
2: substantial.
6: So it was only four hundred thousand acres that were allocated before Andrew Johnson, Lincoln's successor after Lincoln was murdered, it was only 400,000 acres that had been allocated before Andrew Johnson reneged on the program and stopped it. And And the the land reverts back to the the ex-Confederates who had owned it previously.
2: Yeah. Um, You know, it's interesting, as Sandy mentioned uh, a bit earlier, the land that, uh, you know, the white homesteaders uh, were, were given was in the Western Territories. So, this is land that had just only recently been occupied by, inhabited by, you know, Native Americans. Um, so, this helped, you know, this helped the nation, you know, complete its colonial settler project. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, but in, in contrast… In uh,
6: contrast, we're talking
2: about, you know, land that had been confiscated from or abandoned by the Confederates. The traders.: yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the traitors of <laughs> the United States.
6: Yeah.
4: Much more palatable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, so so General Sherman comes up with this order. Of course, he's not a legislator. He's not a senator. He's not a representative. He's he's not in the executive depart. Uh, the, the executive branch of government. No, but government. he was following Lincoln's orders. Oh, he was. So this came from in- Lincoln, inevitably. Yes,
2: yeah. oh. and in fact, uh, the federal government already had in place several experimental projects with black people living on uh, land that had been confiscated. One of those was in Port Royal. Uh, South Carolina and as early as 1861, while the Civil War was being fought, black people were settled on those lands and they were producing, you know, cotton, uh, rice, indigo, um, you know, and, and selling their, uh, goods to the federal government for fixed prices. And the research, uh, on that, on those experiments, uh, reveals that they were wildly successful. I mean, you know, clearly black people knew something about farming. <laughs> you know they've been at it for a while, and uh, and they knew something about the special crops that had been introduced uh, widely across the South. Um, these projects were profitable, um, and the communities were thriving. So they knew that the experiment could work. You know the question was, will the federal government provide this land, provide this asset to these black people as payment for? Hundreds of years of uncompensated labor,
4: and nobody ever got anything. Uh, Johnson going back on the deal occurred before. A few people
2: did initially, Mm -hmm. but they were, you know, the most part made to give the land back. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and in some cases, you know, people had, you know, if they had managed to accumulate some savings and purchase seed or purchase. agricultural implements or farm animals, they lost all of that. You know, the federal government did not reimburse them for any expenses they had incurred.
6: Yeah, well, you know, we said a little bit earlier that uh, the total number of black Americans who receive land grants from the federal government, uh, the the maximum estimate is approximately 20,000 persons. And that's a combination of individuals who got land grants under the Southern Homestead Act, which succeeded the Homestead Act of 1862. Not a replacement, but a complement to it. But it only lasted less than a decade, yeah, six or seven years. And then there were some black Americans who received land under the Homestead Act of 1862 primarily in Kansas. These are the individuals we refer to as the exodusters. So if you combine the folks who got land under the Southern Homestead Act with those who got some land under the Homestead Act, you get approximately uh, 20,000 people at the upper bound. Uh, and as we pointed out, that's 20,000 persons. And the, the total number four, of persons who were eman- emancipated were 4 million. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would
4: there be a movement for reparations after this?
6: In
2: in the early years after Johnson ran? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, you know, we, you know, understand that Black people, you know, enslaved by people were the original abolitionists. You know, they were constantly, continuously trying to figure out how to um, to liberate themselves, how to get paid for the labor they were forced to um, to execute, Um, but you had you know, formal organized efforts uh, very early as well. One of those um, was you know, Kelly House, who had been an enslaved person. Um, she was in Tennessee, and, you know, woman did not have formal education, but she had attended one of the freedom schools, and, you know, one of the documents that they taught was, um, you know, the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution. And, and she, you know, understood that to mean that the federal government exists to help the citizens. And her thinking was, you know, if white veterans are receiving pensions from the federal government for their time serving uh, in the union, why not black veterans? And so she uh, began organizing um, uh, the, the, the mutual uh, beneficent uh, group that she uh, co-organizes. Co- um, uh, eventually has a paid membership of over 300,000 individuals,
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, probably more. That was the number that the federal government was aware of. Um, and they began to, you know, organize and to write letters and to have rallies. Um, and, and then they were, and then she was expanding saying, you know, the federal government should pay pensions to, um, by people, the older by people who had been enslaved. So, um, you know, yes, yeah, she was very focused on this very early. This would have been like the 19...
6: No, so 18, sorry, the
2: 18... um 1890s. And um, so, but, you know, uh, even though... Uh, they also provided um, uh, sort of sick, uh, you know, sickness benefits uh, and, and, and funeral no benefits. benefits. So, um, so, you know, it's kind of an early insurance company model, basically. And um, that but, was very but, appealing,
6: But on a cooperative basis.
2: Right. I mean, people who would pay in, only people who paid in were eligible to receive um, support. Yeah. Um, but, but, yeah, she was very, you know, very driven, woman of high integrity. Um, but the U.S. government was, um, U.S. government was, what's the right word, serious, um, you know, incensed. Hostil. That, that, <laughs> hostile. Hostile. You know, how dare she suggest that the federal government owed these enslaved people anything. Um, And then further, they said, you know, anyone who would suggest that the federal government would pay a pension to the black men and women who had served uh, or to the estates of those who had died was a charlatan. And that she and any of her acolytes must be um con artists and so they went after her on that basis uh and eventually convicted her on mail fraud you know but they although they were never able to fact there's a fabulous book that you may have seen written by um mary frances berry uh and it's an autobiography a biography of callie house um um my face is black is true and um i mean it's an astonishing account of her life um, I mean, but she never promised that these things would be, you know that the federal government would pay uh, a pension. the federal government would pay uh, its debt to black people. Uh, she was very clear, saying, this is something we are asking for, something we are hoping for. We are making an appeal. Um, at one point, she had proposed that the cotton, that had been a bales of cotton that had been confiscated from the confederates during the war but it was still being warehoused um by united states marshals that the value of that cotton should be the basis of reparations um but the us government you know, said, you, know you know how dare you you know try to to um, claim a right to that cotton <laughs> you know that that enslaved black people uh grew mm-hmm. harvested and bailed um, but yes, it was quite, uh, she actually ended up going to jail for, uh, one year. She served a year in prison, uh, for her efforts. Uh, but, but the, the movement did not die with her. Um, you know, uh, chapters. The Marcus chapters, Garvey movement took it up, didn't it? Chapters, uh, chapters flourished across the country. Then, uh, then the next person of, of note is Marcus Garvey, uh, who has a similar model, um, now, Garvey, though, was also proposing that, you know, black people's best bet was to um, to relocate to the continent of Africa, which is not part of Kelly House's uh, agenda. agenda at all. Yeah. Um, but he, too, is eventually targeted by the United States government uh, for mail fraud uh, and was given the choice of going to jail and being deported back to Jamaica. And so he, he, he chooses deportation. Um, But then you had, you know, uh, Audley Moore, who was a Garveyite. Uh, She was born in 1898 and uh, becomes kind of like the modern face of reparations in the United States in the 20th century.
4: She's also known as Queen Mother
2: Moore. Queen Mother Audley Moore.
6: uh, Uh, Kirsten did uh, a, a, a fabulous article about Queen Mother Audley Moore, what it's called, The Queen Mother, Mother. in Vanity Fair, November 2022. So very recent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But, you know, fascinating woman,
2: you know, um, black nationalist, reparations uh, advocate. um, And she was not only influential, but, you know, understood the connection between um, the oppression of black people in the South in terms of wages, in terms of policing. Um, you know, she was very much uh engaged as was um, Ida B. Wells, uh, in looking at the, the so called lynching claims uh of white women against uh black young black men across the South. The rape, rape uh, these rape charges, um, these rape charges that white women were making um, against black black young black men, um, and linking them to the lynching trail across the South. But she was also interested in um, you know, looking at the paucity of jobs with any kind of growth potential for Black people in the South, but also in the North. Um, But yeah, she was a very interesting, very interesting character. Um, You know, she's active in Louisiana uh, and very much active in uh, the state of New York.
6: And then we get a pan Africanist, but her focus in terms of the reparations claim was specific to black Americans whose ancestors were enslaved in the United States. That that's That's who she felt were supposed to receive uh, redress from the United States government.
4: In in talking about reparations, and and I thought you made a very important point earlier, that reparations is not something that's new to the United States or even to governments around the world. They they happen all the time. The United States have paid reparations, as you mentioned, to uh, Japanese Americans who were interned during World War II, as they should have been. I think most people would agree that they should have been paid reparations.
6: Um, yeah, absolutely.
4: You know, when, when ideas of reparations come up, and I, I saw this especially here in California when it was first reported about this commission's draft proposals that has not been officially released yet. Um, I, I did see a lot of people say we can't have reparations without, without also having reparations for Californian Indians, for, for Native Californians, Um because if you, know, if you look at the history of the state of California, they, they lost as much as, as anyone had lost and also had a genocide conducted against them. How, how do you respond to the calls that if we're going to... That, that there should be reparations for, for uh, African Americans, there should also be reparations for Native
2: Americans? There's absolutely a, a very strong case uh, for Native Americans, uh, not just in California, but across the United States. Um, and we support those efforts, but that is not the case we're making. Um, you know, we are focused very narrowly on the, t- the case for true reparations for black American sins of U.S. slavery. I think there's a lot to be learned, uh, uh, you know, in the two movements, and it's important to, you know, come together and talk about strategy um, and to talk about research methods, but the cases are different, um, and we think there's some danger involved in lumping them together, you know, kind of log-rolling or piggybacking, what we have seen uh, when that kind of strategy is adopted is that both cases are diluted. Um, you know, it's really difficult, I think, for individuals to wrap themselves, wrap their brains around the details of both cases. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, focusing on one and, you know, uh, You know, giving your support to the other,
6: we think, is a more effective way to proceed. I think people are having a hard enough time trying to understand or appreciate the notion that reparations for black American descendants of U.S. slavery is not a case that's being made exclusively on the basis of slavery. In fact, there is a whole historical record in the post-slavery period of atrocities that forge the racial wealth differential in this country, that are critical to the case for uh, for, for African American reparations. Uh, so then, if you take the next step, which is to to say, well, we're not only concerned about reparations for Black American descendants of U.S. slavery, but for this group and that group and so forth, uh, it really, really uh, distorts yeah. distorts the argument. And, and I'll note that, you know, when other communities have received reparations in the United States, including the Japanese American community, there was no significant overture towards saying, well, shouldn't Black Americans get reparations at the same time? And and and, and we don't think that 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 overture should have been made uh, because it would have reduced the integrity of the distinct Case or claim for reparations that the Japanese American community had. So
1: you're saying reparations? have to, have to be. You're, you're
4: saying reparations have to be focused. Yes, yes absolutely. Very specific, very specific community of
2: eligibility. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if any mentioned this uh, too a bit earlier, but you know, uh, for us, you know, when we're thinking about Native Americans uh, and reparations, you're talking about a case. Or that involves sovereignty, um, which is very different from what you know Black American citizens of U.S. slavery are seeking. Um, in in this instance, we're talking about full citizenship rights, which is very different from right. a sovereignty claim. So that's another distinction, yeah. I the, think, the that ma- is really important. Material, material conditions for, for full for citizenship, citizenship yeah. for Black Americans yeah. of U.S. slavery. Um, so there, there are not just nuances, but some huge differences. I think that really come into play that get kind of diluted um, or just completely ignored when you lump these different groups together.
4: William Darity, you you are an economist and I had read for 30 years, you you were influenced by a, a book that you read 30 years ago uh, called the wealth of races uh, that ever since you have been trying to calculate how much, you know, what reparations should be for, for black Americans.
6: Yes. Um, and uh, there's an article that Kirsten and I did with Marvin Slaughter that was published last year uh, called the Cumulative Cost of Racism and the Bill for Reparations, where we attempted to do a, a, a critical analysis of various ways in which you might calculate uh, the, uh, the sum that is due as, uh, as redress to black American descendants of U.S. slavery. Um, and uh, I think that there, there are two fundamental approaches. Uh, one approach is to list, catalog, and enumerate all of the relevant harms and atrocities that have been imposed on a victimized community, find a way to assign a dollar value to each, of those atrocities, and then uh, then add it up to come up with a a, a total a total bill for the account. Uh, that's one approach, the enumeration approach, which is essentially what the uh, California, California reparations task force has settled on as the way in which they're attempting to uh, to address uh, the recommendations that they're going to make. Uh, The the second approach, though, is to try to find some single measure or indicator that captures essentially the combined effects of these atrocities in the present moment. And uh, and we've gravitated toward the latter because we think that there's insufficient information to... uh, actually do the enumeration effectively. Uh, we also think that uh, many of the items that are placed on the list might not be relevant to the, uh, the the reparations claim that might be made by persons who are living today. So, for example, uh, we have some excellent attempts at calculation of the cost of slavery to the persons who were enslaved. And the numbers get to be uh, extraordinarily high, Right, uh, you know, ranging from $54 trillion to oh, trillion dollars. $6 quadrillion, yeah. dollars, uh, you know, for the time that was stolen from all of the individuals who were subjected to slavery in the United States. But, uh, But we don't think that that is a bill that can be justifiably paid to those of us who are living descendants of the persons who are enslaved and so what we need is a measure of the denied opportunities and economic security that confronts the folks who are living now as a consequence of the long-term effects of slavery and the atrocities in its aftermath. And so that's why we settle on the racial wealth gap as the primary indicator of the cumulative intergenerational effects of white supremacy on folks who are living now. And so we choose the second approach, which is to find this single measure that attempts to capture the combined effects of all of these harms. Uh, And so when we settle on the racial wealth gap as the the core uh, core mechanism for for measuring uh, the size of the reparations bill, we come up with a figure in the present moment of about $14 trillion that is owed to the 40 million individuals whose ancestors were enslaved in the United States and who are living as black Americans today.
4: And only the American government could do $14 trillion.
6: I mean, probably not, right. not in a
4: single year.
6: I mean, I imagine this would have to be over time. It could. could it, it could it, do it, it in a single year. Right. Yeah. And, and, and we recommend, though, that it be done over no more right. than a decade. Yeah. No more than a decade. Certainly not 50 years, as yeah. some people are proposing with the California measure. Uh, and and we also say that if, uh, you know, uh, a legitimate concern might be the adverse inflationary effects of such an injection of funds into into the economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could uh, distribute the funds in ways that are different from simple direct cash transfers. You could distribute the funds right. that took in, in a form in which they were less liquid assets. Right. It could be annuities. Well, you know, yeah. a trust fund, some type of you know, some endowment,
2: some
6: portfolio of uh, of yeah. assets. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but the key thing is that the individual recipients should ultimately have full discretion over the use of the funds.
4: They they should get the funds. People should individually. They should get funds. the
6: money. Yeah. Yeah. It should not be channeled through some social program or some third party. You know, or or be converted to scholarships. Ah,
2: uh, yeah,
6: the scholarships. Um, um, why oh. not everyone?
2: Yeah. Why? Well, I mean, so everyone is not you know, looking to go to college or back to college um, or may or may not have relatives who they could, you know, give that money to, if that was even allowed. Um, You know, this was not, you know, when Japanese Americans received uh, those uniform payments of $20,000, they didn't come with a, a caveat that said, okay, you can only use this money if you're going to, you know, go to a state school. Uh, or you can only use this money if you're buying a house.
4: And, and it wasn't put through social programs. House. Yeah, and it wasn't put through social programs. As no, as no, a, no, it was a cash given directly to them. Yeah.
2: And um, as, as it should have been. As it should have been. Yeah. And that work was done in about eighteen months. Yeah. Beginning to end.
4: And mm. it was what, ten thousand dollars each person? Twenty oh, thousand dollars. Twenty thousand dollars. Nineteen eighty eight. And
2: 1988, dollars, yeah. which is about what about forty three or so thousand dollars today? Uh, something like that, 38000 to $43,000, oh, yeah, which calculator you, you use.
6: Calculate.
2: And people say, you know, $20,000, that doesn't sound like a lot of money. But, you know, many of these families were um, farmers, and they had larger families. So say you had four children. That's a family of six. Um, you know, you're talking in today's dollars something closer to two forty to three hundred twenty twenty-five thousand $25,000. That's not insignificant for, you know, individuals who were incarcerated for four years. You know, four years. Um, You know, I'm not belittling the horrors that they were subjected to, but, um, you know, people who say, well, that doesn't sound like a lot of money need to really think about, you know, the conversion to today's currency.
4: A. Kirsten Molin and William A. Darity Jr. have been our guests. They've joined us for a conversation about reparations. They are the editors and contributors of a new book. It's called The black reparations project a handbook for racial justice william darity Kristen mullen i've enjoyed that conversation very much it's very educational and i thank you both
6: thank you you thanks thanks very much
9: living in america as a black person you recognize there is one set of laws for you and one set of laws For those especially in the white community in our book passive aggressive racism in the system of white supremacy i take you through times in my life when i first started noticing white supremacy we teach you how to recognize it identify it and also counter it in our book this book is a beginner's course for those that just starting to wake up and open their eyes to see the system of white supremacy as a black american person you must understand this system because this system is life or death to you how you handle it, how you deal with it, it can affect your mental health if you don't understand this system. Pick up our book, Past Aggressive Racism and the System of White right Supremacy, today on Amazon. So what's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Today we have you know a very special guest. It's our sister, Camila Moore Esquire, um, and she is part of the California Reparations Commission. She is the chairperson, correct? Correct. All right, so we wanted to confirm she is the chairperson. So we definitely thank you, uh, Sister Camila, for joining us today. Now, for people that maybe not know much about you or, or your background, can you just tell people just a little bit, you know, about yourself?
3: Sure. So my name's Camila Victoria Moore. I'm from Los Angeles, California, um, Lamert Park area. Um, I went to UCLA for undergrad, took some time off to teach, um, and then I went to Columbia for law school where I Dedicated my studies to you know, intellectual property, which allowed me to go into entertainment law, but simultaneously um, I dedicated part of my studies to repertory justice uh, Which allowed me to study abroad um, at the University of Amsterdam law school where I obtained a dual degree in International criminal law. So not only do I have a traditional JD degree, but I have a LLM or a master's of laws in international criminal law from the University of Amsterdam where I wrote um, a thesis on global repertory justice for the transatlantic slave trade, the institution of slavery and their legacies, not only in the United States, but also highlighting um, the need for global repertory justice for Black Brazilians and Black Colombians in particular. Um, And that led me to apply to be a part of the California Reparations Task Force, where I was appointed by an elected official to serve as one of the nine members of the task force. And um, In June 2021, when we had our first task force meeting, I was elected chairperson.
9: All right. So you elected chairperson. So we have been definitely following this, you know, very, very closely. And I know y'all recently had a, you know, vote about who would actually get reparations. I know it was a a battle about race-based versus lineage-based. And correct me if I'm wrong you push for the lineage base correct
3: correct i did
9: okay and you were saying what was being quoted by you saying that it can't you know lineage base can't be challenged as easily as race based Can you go expound on that just a little bit more you know maybe for people that actually want to know more about that
3: yeah absolutely so in february of this year we actually invited erwin Timurinsky, formerly known as Dean Aaron Chemerinsky. He's the Dean of UC Berkeley Law School, and he is one of the most, if not foremost, constitutional law scholars in the country, if not the world, when it comes to U.S. constitutional law. And he came to provide expert testimony to the task force and essentially explain how, you know, in a conservative Supreme Court, or just as the law of the land as it, as it states, right, race-based classifications are in the supreme court's words inherently suspect and so what that means is that any race-based policies even if to um you know um correct past discrimination in the eyes of the supreme court um which is being increasingly more conservative in their eyes those race-based classifications are inherently suspect as i said and then trigger what's called strict scrutiny in constitutional um, judicial review and what that means is that essentially in layman's terms, there's a very high bar that, you know, the government would have to meet in order to substantiate um, a race-based policy. And so Irwin Chamorinsky uh, essentially stated that if you construct a reparations program based on lineage versus race, lineage, you know, is inherently not about race, and thus that knocks the scrutiny down to the lowest level, which is called rational basis review. And under a rational basis review, the government would just have to come with you know a rational basis for this policy rather than meeting the highest bar, um which is strict scrutiny. I'm trying to like explain it in a way that's like easy for folks to understand, but I hope that that makes sense
9: <laughs> okay, and in the lineage base, which we definitely support ten thousand percent lineage base and not just race base um there were certain parameters with lineage base. Could you explain those parameters?
3: Yes. So the task force uh, decided to define the community of eligibility to those who can trace their ancestry to a cha- an African-American chatteled enslaved person or free black person living in the United States prior to the 19th century. So prior to 1900. That's the lineage base criteria that we set up currently.
9: Okay. Now this, this is going to be an interesting question I'm going to pose to you. What if a um Caucasian person says, Hey, well, you know, back in my family I had a uh enslaved black person in my family. Look, they're right here. So I deserve reparations.
3: How do you take how do you deal with that? Well, that's a really good question. I think that's the the common question people have when they talk when we talk about lineage based versus race based reparations, but I often challenge people to ask the same question, um, for the race based side. So For instance, there's people like Rachel Dolezal, right, who was born white but maintains that she's Black. Um, You have Mindy Kaling's brother who is of South Asian descent and literally wrote a book about how he pretended to be Black in order to get into medical school. And so my argument against a race-based standard um, is that what's to prevent, like, the proliferation of blackfishing especially now that there would be a reparations incentive right and then also are we comfortable with the state determining who's black enough right especially when we know that race is a social construct right it's a racist um, invention by white supremacists to you know classify certain people based on phenotype um, and so it can get really sticky when you base a reparation program on race right because then you're asking the state to determine who's black and who's not. Um, but you know, to your point about you know, a white person who might be eligible for lineage-based reparations, again, I just stated how on the race-based reparations program a white person could also be eligible and people of color potentially. Um, but if a white person does have some ancestry to a slave person, I've been thinking about this recently. Does that mean they should be eligible for reparations for compensation? Maybe, maybe not because that's their ancestry. But we can also talk about they could be eligible for reparations in the terms of truth and reconciliation. There was an article that was just recently published in the New York Times that talked about how, um, and you know, these white people weren't necessarily related to the black people, but they had records in their attics and their basements about you know their um, their their slave owner family members, and then they turned over those records to black people, um, uh, descendants of slaves. So that those descendants of slaves could get more connected to their family history so that process in and of itself i think is you know a symbolic form of reparations in the form of of truth and reconciliation and i think that's the whole point the larger point is for yes black americans who descend from chattel slavery uh to change their material conditions because you know we were denied our 40 acres and a mule but it's also about transitional justice getting out of you know this this racist society that we're in and hopefully improving it for the better
9: right because like my my grandparents i trace mine back to my great 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 grandmother and grandfather in my family um who were you know uh on sugarcane plantations in louisiana i what? mean because i it, i just believe that it should be something ironclad that nobody can get their way in it because if you just take certain things i mean you say you're a lawyer and you work with other constitutional lawyers y'all have to come up with a way where these others won't try to get in on a reparations claim because they didn't come from that lineage at all they didn't right. i mean and they're still not dealing with those issues and problems you know today are, are the repercussions of slavery that went into jim crow etc um so that's just just my only small concern because i know these folks i know them like the back of their head when it was time for the Native Americans uh, to get something, they had a, a, they, they paid $5 to get on the rolls, and that's why we would call them $5 Indians. And now you look at today, if you look at the so-called civilized tribes and who run in them, all of them don't look like red-skinned Native Americans.
3: They look white. Yeah, so the, we definitely don't want to replicate that um, on the side of descendants of slaves. So I definitely understand that concern, and it's something that I've been thinking about and, yeah, this process isn't over.
9: <laughs> All right. So outside of that, another question that I definitely want to ask is, what what is being discussed on the table for reparations? And is it cash payments?
3: Uh, yes. Cash payments is on the table because you know, the AB 3121 statute, uh, which established the task force, um, it mandates that any of our recommendations or proposals, has to comport with international law standards. So that was one of the reasons why I applied to be on this task force in the first place, because of my knowledge of international law. And under international law, reparations comes in five forms. And so one of those part forms is compensation. So yes, we have been discussing compensation. We've actually also enlisted an economic consultant team that comprises of economists such as a William Spriggs, um, who was once the chair of um, the economics department at Howard University, Professor Casey a. Campbell, who is an economics professor here in the state of California, and Dr. William Darity, who is an economist at Duke University. His partner, William A. Kirsten Mullen, is also on the team, as well as Thomas Kramer, who's not an economist, but he's a professor of public policy. And um, he's most known for his study on reparations for, for slave labor, um and his estimate even has been is in the quadrillions, and so all five of these people are on an economic consultant team that is helping the task force come up with compensation models Um, thus far we decided to endorse what's called a state-specific harms model versus the uh what we're calling a federal model where the federal model um is based off of a compensation that would close the racial or lineage wealth gap between uh, black Americans who descended from chattel slavery and white Americans. And um, essentially the argument is that you know state, state budgets don't have a monetary capacity to fill that debt. And so um, there should be pressure on the federal government to make that obligation. But at the same time, the state of California can and should um you know compensate black americans who descend from chattel slavery and those who feed, fit the eligibility criteria for state specific harm so we've um decided to you know sequence not necessarily prioritize harms but sequence harm so we've directed uh, since our last hearing on april 13th and 14th we've directed the economic consultant team to start um calculating for the following harms uh, mass incarceration police violence, houselessness, housing segregation, eminent um, domain takings, um, trans uh, health harms, and epigenetic uh, or transgenerational health harms.
9: OK, so you mentioned um, compensation, but you, do you remember the story of uh, Bruce's Beach as of recent, correct?
3: Yes, correct.
9: OK, and the state of California returned the land back to the family
3: yes correct
9: okay so there is a precedent of land being returned now cash payments they got to be there is there any kind of way that those descendants in california could possibly get their land back or land allotments
3: are you talking about the bruce bruce's i'm impact? talking
9: about i'm using bruce's beach as a precedent i mean oh, you're a right. lawyer you know about precedent yeah, so but since the state of california has returned mm-hmm. land back to the you know bruce's family Yes. In his reparations uh, outside of the cash payments,
3: mm-hmm. is there
9: anything on the table about land allotments?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, yes, one of the, the harms that we're directing the task force to uh, the economic consultant team to, um, you know, calculate it's related to, like, imminent domain takings, which is how the Bruce's, um land was taken. But I wanted to make a point of that because you raised a really great point about precedent right a Bruce Beach example that is an example of lineage-based reparations, right? They didn't just go up to any black person on the street and say here's this land it was taken um, by a black family you're black you know you must have faced systemic racism at some point of time so here the land is for you. No that's not what they did, right? They enlisted a law firm and they put out a search they said if you think that you are one of the closest living heirs of the Bruce's, then contact us. And so, what did they do to to uh, confirm that through a lineage-based reparations program? They, you know, considered DNA testing and genealogical evidence. And so, the California Reparations Task Force in defining a lineage-based criteria versus a race-based criteria, you know, that that that's what we did. We followed along that same logic um and so yes that does set a precedent right um actually just a couple of days ago um, a conservative person actually petitioned um against giving the land back to the Bruces, um and la county knew that someone was going to challenge it right we knew who was going to challenge it uh but then the judge actually denied the petition right because it's an airtight it's an airtight argument and so that could, and I probably I it probably would set a precedent um, whereby you'll see, you know, black Americans who descend from chattel slavery, whose families' lands were taken uh, for eminent domain purposes to build highways and um, you know, other infrastructure and things like that, um, you might see through this um broad-based California Reparations Task Force efforts um the return of various different lands back to those closest living heirs and hopefully that could happen in the south and in other places in the country as well
9: okay so eminent domain which we know is basically the government taking your land from you but what about black people that lost their land through white supremacist
3: Oh yes, that is a great point. And I would suspect that, you know, the economic consultants that we've enlisted uh, will also consider that in, in, in the calculations as well. So not just eminent domain, but like you said, white supremacist terrorism. And, you know, in our report that we're actually releasing in June of this year, which is over 700 pages, and, 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 and lists out in detail the various harms that Black Americans who descend from cattle slavery in this country i have experienced, and in the state, um, there are specific examples, um, testimonies of people who have lost their land uh, due to white supremacist terrorism. Okay.
9: So, so it's, for me, it's sounding good. It's sounding good. So what is the pushback that you're getting when you're, we already know the, yeah. the, the you know, white community, some, not all. Is going to push back on this they don't want black people to even have 10 cents more than what they got period even if we owed something but what is the overall pushback even with some people within our own community because i watched your interview uh on msnbc with tiffany cross and i didn't like it i didn't like it not because of you i didn't like it because you're being attacked Mm -hmm. i was kind of bothered by that so outside of, you know, you being brought on national TV to get attacked, because I didn't agree with that whatsoever, um, what, what are they really coming at you about, you know, outside of, you know, what you're already hearing that maybe we don't know?
3: So I think there's just, um, in the most diplomatic way to respond, I think there's just some misunderstandings, I think, of the implications of a lineage-based approach rather than a race-based approach. I think, you know, whether innocent or not, I think there's, again, just, Misunderstanding about um, you know people thinking that a lineage-based approach means that um, you know black people who descend from child slavery don't care about our black folks in the African diaspora, um, you know which is not true in any way, um, or they see it as divisive, um, which is not true in any way. So I think it's probably just for us as the task force is a communications thing, and we're getting on top of that so that we can you know. Lord Jesus. I know you say you don't edit for words. But <laughs>
9: no, no, I won't edit your words. Not at all.
3: Okay. Um, I think people are just saying it's divisive. It's, um, But th- that's not true because, you know, for instance, I wrote my thesis on global repertory justice for the transatlantic slave trade, the institution of slavery, and their legacies. And so this lineage-based reparation program in California is in perfect alignment, I would say, uh, to the global reparatory justice pro- uh, for people of African descent, right? So you have, for instance, last month, actually Prime Minister Mia Motley um, of Barbados. She is currently the co-chair of the Reparations Subcommittee for CARICOM. She uh, led a draft letter with the African Union just last month, as I said, Um, advocating or to re-engage European countries on um, the concept of reparations, right? Um, Also last month you had Jamaica um, when the royal family came to Jamaica for um, you know just to visit you had people protesting, uh, protesting the royal family for reparations, right? No one said Jamaicans you're being divisive because there is an island very close to you caught Barbados who was also owned by the British, why aren't you also including Barbados <laughs> into your um, specific lineage-based reparations demand to the royal family, right? No one said, okay, Prime Minister Barbados Mia Motley and the African Union, you all are being divisive and not including black Brazilians, black Colombians, and black Americans in your reparations or your renewed reparations demand uh, to the European Union, because of course, in the United States from 1619, or actually earlier than that to 1776, black people were owned by French here in the United States, uh, the Germans, the um, Spanish, right? And the list goes on and on. So, um, you know, my main argument around this is that it's not divisive it's in perfect alignment with the global repertory justice uh, efforts for the transatlantic slave trade the institution of slavery and their legacies uh, which are all lineage specific and it puts us as black americans on equal footing i argue to our counterparts in the african diaspora who have experienced not only emancipation but also independence right, 50, 60 years of independence, of, of being able to exercise the human right to self-determination to identify themselves proudly as Jamaicans, Haitians, Cubans, um, and the list goes on and on. This program, I think, allows us to have a conversation about, okay, what does the human right to self-determination mean for us as Black Americans or African-Americans who dissent from chattel slavery?
9: Yeah, well, you know, that, that divisive, you know, uh, argument, um, let's just keep it real. At one point in time in this country, white people didn't want no African here, no Caribbean here whatsoever, period. And it was our ancestors that fought for them to even get into this country so they could come here. They said you can get a better life, get opportunities. So for me, and I, this is me saying this, you come in here and be able to get an education, get a home, get everything that you're getting and sending money back to your home countries, that is your reparations, period, that you come in here to a land that black Americans built. See, the the problem, Camila, is everybody's so entitled to get what black people have always gotten. Because if you notice, Camila, every time it comes to something for black people, it has to be black and this group, black and this. But when it comes to other groups of people, it's just asians it's just Hispanics. it's just Arabs. it's just white people it's just they it's okay for everybody else to get something individually but when it comes to us well we're being divisive right i mean if anything if if y'all are successful at putting together these reparations and doing it right then you would have the model that could be spread throughout the country and then when it pops off here in america guess what's going to happen now you've got africans now starting to talk call out the uk and saying hey we, y'all need to start paying reparations. So me and you wouldn't be entitled to reparations out of Kenya, and we wouldn't, if we no. lived there. So
3: no, it's not divisive. Right, and to the Kenyan example, not all Kenyans were eligible for reparations through the Mau Mau Rebellion. Like only the Mau Mau ethnic group were mm-hmm. owed reparations for that particular rebellion or massacre, rather. So,
10: yeah, you're right.
9: <laughs> well, the reparations they're calling for now is for colonization hmm Yes. So so all their ancestors that were colonized, now let's say Kenyans, you could say South Africans, you could say anybody that the British that colonized, right? Mm-hmm. Now if, if they had to pay reparations, then they would have a claim to that based on the colonization. Well, let's say if me, like I said once again, me and you moved to one of those countries, we wouldn't get a check because that's not where ancestors come from. Exactly. We wouldn't. And we can't come in there and say, you're being divisive. I mean, right. that's not right. Well, you know, and we
3: shouldn't get a check, right? No, we
9: shouldn't get a check and say, well, we experienced discrimination. Mm-hmm. But you came here by choice, and a lot of you can go back when you want to and get away from here. We, don't, we can't just jump up and leave and go to an African or Caribbean nation without going through a process. Unlike them, they can just leave when the goings to get tough.
3: Potentially. That's if they come from a war zone or something like that. But even still, there's a claim for that. Um, it's a claim against the United States for American imperialism. So
9: Okay, so you also, well, on, on the task force, and this was, this was formed, what, in 2020? Yes. Mm-hmm. So so why did it take the 2022 to start having these meetings? I'm curious about that. Because some people are saying, well, we talk about politics. Well, I think they're just doing it now because they know they're in trouble with, with black Americans, so they want to hurry up and get this task force out there and say you had nothing to do with it. But why it took two years?
3: Well no, it, it hasn't taken two years. Um, yes, so the the bill was signed by Gavin Newsom, I think in like the summer of twenty twenty and then it took about like a year to, you know, get people to apply and get through the interview process and stuff like that. And so the first meeting was actually June of 2021, which was last year. And so in the statute, it, it gives the task force two years to complete its mission. And so we're supposed to be finished by uh, June, July of 2023. So, you know, from June of last year to now, we've actually been taking advantage of being able to meet virtually. So we've had about eight virtual meetings from June to um march and then we had our first in-person hearing in april just a few days ago april 13th and 14th at third baptist church in san francisco which is a, a historic church and is the church of vice chair pastor amos brown who is the civil rights icon and uh, we have nine more meetings left nine more in-person meetings left and I mean we plan to spread those nine uh, meetings out um, through the next year, so we have a year left um, to, and so this past year, again, we've kind of been in the study phase documenting the enormous amounts of evidence that obviously substantiates the claim for reparations for African Americans descended from child slavery in the United States. We have the report coming out in June that catalogs all those harms and all those testimonies collected and then, you know, that marks a transition from the study phase of our efforts to the developmental stage of our efforts where we're actually having substantive conversations in that last year about what do the forms of reparations look like, so that will be collected in our second or final report which will then be you know, given to the California legislature for them to adopt into law. But I will say that in our interim report, in our interim report coming out in June, there are some preliminary recommendations in there. And if approved, right, um, those recommendations can go to the California legislature as early as this June. And so as early as this June, the California state legislature can uh, seek to enact reparations legislation.
9: Okay, so a quick question for you, you know, definitely before you wrap up, Um, will you have something in place where people can trace back their ancestors? Like, in other words, you have some structure in place that, hey, go to this website, do this, do that. Because I'm thinking about people that maybe can't do the, you know, I don't know how to do the ancestry thing, but so are you guys going to set that up? Well,
3: you know that was one of the preliminary recommendations in the interim report, and if approved, you know one of those preliminary recommendations would be to set up an office of American Freedmen Affairs. That would include an office for genealogy um, that would help people um, in the process of confirming their eligibility.
9: Okay, awesome, awesome. Well, you know, Camila, we definitely want to thank you, you know, for coming on today and and expounding on, you know, the points and, and what reparations is possibly going to look like. Um, I know you have nine more meetings, and I, I, I was kind of seeing what was going on. It, it, the last one is like, okay, you know, I, I like, as I stated before, and I tell you again, just have patience. Have patience. Please have patience, because I know you're going to deal with a lot. The, the closer and closer you get to the finish line, so because I know our people. I know them. That's for sure.
3: Thank thank you for the advice.
9: (laughs) So, so Camila, if anybody got any questions, maybe, uh, for you, uh, how can people possibly get in uh, contact with you?
3: Yes, so you can find me on Twitter at Camila V. Moore. Uh, You can also email the task force at reparations at doj.ca.gov, or you can visit our website at OAG dot ca.gov forward slash ab3121 where there you can keep up to date with our meetings and subscribe to our newsletter and correction the correct email is reparations task force at doj.ca.gov
9: All right, ladies and gentlemen, we definitely, you know, appreciate our sister Camila, you know, for coming by and giving us, you know, the information, you know, that we definitely need. And and sister Camila, you know, you can come by anytime um, to, you know, give us some updates, what's going on. Like I say, this is a a, a good place for you. You're not going to be attacked here. Don't worry about it. You know, we all family.
3: (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, this is actually a really uh, breath of fresh air in terms of interviews that I've gotten recently.
9: Oh, like I said, we we on your side, sister. So, so we are definitely on your side. So, no, no, we just want to make sure reparations, you know, go out to our brothers and sisters in California because if it can happen there, then it can happen, you know, for places like, you know, here in Texas and other places, you know, in, in the United States and even also throughout the world. So, you know, the, the black world's watching y'all. So we want to make sure that that information go out.
3: Thank you for the opportunity.
11: (laughs) California's beaches are home to some of America's priciest real estate, the American dream. A nice place to call your own, raise a family, and perhaps build some wealth you can pass on to your children. And yet, in the United States of today, whether that dream comes true still largely depends on the color of your skin. On average, white families have almost eight times as much wealth as black families do. The U.S. government calls this the racial wealth gap. That gap keeps getting worse. But where does it start? The main reason for this large and lasting gap between black and white Americans lies at the conditions surrounding the civil war. That's the conclusion of a government study looking at the roots of the racial wealth divide. It directly traces the wealth gap back to black Americans being barred from accumulating wealth for themselves. But it didn't have to be that way. For a moment, when the Civil War was coming to an end, it looked like America was willing to fix this by giving newly freed slaves what every white settler had received, land. The pro-slavery South was almost defeated and Union General William T. Sherman issued his famous field order number 15. He declared that every freed slave family was to receive 40 acres of land, mostly confiscated from white plantation owners. It was an idea backed by Frederick Douglass, the former slave who advised Abraham Lincoln. He helped convince the president that enslaved people should not be sent back to Africa, but instead be given a stake in the land they now called home. But when Lincoln was assassinated, the new president, Andrew Johnson, overturned that 40 acres order. Johnson gave most of the seized land back to white plantation owners. Johnson had killed America's first and only attempt to give black citizens the same starting conditions as white settlers. Instead, Johnson's way of ending slavery left black Americans on the wrong side of a wealth gap that would never be closed. In 1876, Frederick Douglass decried this as a fundamental flaw in how America's enslaved were set free. You say you have emancipated us. But
12: when you turned us loose, you gave us no acres.
13: You turned us loose to the sky, to the storm,
12: to the world. And worst of all...
13: You turned us loose to the wrath of our infuriated mess.
11: One and a half centuries after these words were written, America is beginning a new debate over paying reparations. Reparations is about money, but it's also about creating wealth that can be passed on to the next generation. Owning a home is the classic way to do that. Today, 72% of white Americans own a home, while only 44% of African Americans do. And while 8% of white Americans own commercial real estate, only 3% of black Americans do. More than 150 years after the abolition of slavery, pressure is mounting for action. To atone for the past, to even things up for the present, and to create more equal opportunities for the future.
3: So being here was
2: was immensely powerful and moving.
11: Vice President Kamala Harris shorn White House attention on the matter in early 2023. At a port of deportation in Ghana, she made an explicit link between enslaved people and American privilege.
2: All of us, regardless of your background, have benefited from their struggle and their fight for freedom and for justice. Thank you.
11: But so far, the Biden-Harris presidency sees the question of reparations as an issue for Congress, not the president, and certainly not for a re-election campaign. Freedom. One reason is that, on the whole, more than two-thirds of Americans are against the idea. But within that is a huge difference of opinion, with black and white Americans almost a mirror image of each other. A Democrat bill on the issue has been stuck in Congress for years.
6: Uh, I hope it goes nowhere. Why? Uh, Reparations is something with a country that's going bankrupt. We cannot afford it and we had other priorities that were highly. Uh, rank higher than
11: that. I just want to ask you how much of a political priority is the whole question of reparations for you?
7: It's not. Why not? Um,
12: Because you have a situation in our country now where uh, black people in America have many pathways to success and it isn't just by giving direct money. Um, The second part is as a nation we don't have a lot of money.
11: With no chance of a nationwide approach anytime soon, some individual communities have decided to act. I traveled across the country to meet those determined to repair at least some of the economic divide between black and white. It's here in California, the home of Kinseltown, where America will decide for the first time whether reparations will become reality or remain fiction for an entire state. This is where the drama is playing out. Manhattan Beach is a well-to-do district with a complicated history. One patch of beach ended up as a public park because of an injustice now commemorated by a plaque.
13: I wasn't the only one who didn't know. Yeah, there was a plaque over there, but the plaque was inaccurate and incomplete, and it seemed very whitewashed.
11: Charles and Willow Bruce bought land here in 1921. They got in before their white neighbors started developing an interest and the area became known as Bruce's Beach. Essentially what happened in the 19-teens,
13: Charles and Willa Bruce, they came out here, they set up shop, they had a a very, very small business where they sold like small things like bathing suits and things of that nature. And then once they earned enough money, they bought another plot of land and ultimately turned their land into what is called uh, Bruce's Beach Resort. They provided a safe space for black people. And so what happened is black people started buying property up there on what is now Bruce's Beach Park. And when the white residents saw black people taking up space and more and more of them coming in, they didn't like it.
11: In the end, the city used a provision called eminent domain to effectively disown the Bruce family the city turned its new property into a park while white developers around it benefited from rising real estate prices. The case of Charles and Willa Bruce is a reference point across America, like here at a conference on black land rights in Boston.
7: This happened
12: all over the country. It happened all the time. And we've got a you know a well documented history of the government at every level, federal, state and local, using the law and using legal means to deprive black people of property ownership, deprive black people of the right to build wealth and to transfer that wealth.
11: In the first deal of its kind in America, the city of Los Angeles handed the land back to the descendants of Charles and Willa Bruce. 100 years after it was taken.
4: It symbolizes for all of us that it is always the right time to do the right thing.
11: Within months, the Bruce family sold the land back to the city for $20 million. But for the woman who led the fight for this to happen, that result was a disappointment. It ended up as a land deal, rather than bringing black entrepreneurship into an all-white area.
13: I it's mean, I good. just don't like going back there because it just makes me upset to just yeah. think about. Just. And here we are. Things are the same. It's unfortunate. Look up and now here. How many black people have you seen?
11: it remains
13: white. When I moved here, there was 0.5% of black people living here. And I think it's the same now. A half a percent of black people living in this city. That's by design. You cannot tell me that's not by design. So unfortunate that white people get to pass down wealth. And black people get to pass down a fight for equality and justice.
11: Bruce's Beach will remain a Coast Guard facility and a public park. This return of property was an exception. California itself is an American exception as the only one of 50 states taking concrete steps towards compensating its black residents for the injustices of the past. California has launched a statewide reparations task force that is about to make recommendations to lawmakers.
10: Task Force and DOJ is on track to deliver the final report come July 1.
11: It has been collecting accounts from hundreds of experts and private witnesses.
13: Our ancestors are the ones who built the White House, if you will. So why do we have to struggle so hard with education? This is another attack upon our people, and this is modern-day slavery.
10: Seems to me... Free health care, free education, tax-exempt status, land allocation, and a check could have longevity. Financial experts
11: told the Commission that with interest, just the wages that America owes its formerly enslaved people would amount to 20 billion dollars. The figures are daunting, yet Democrat-governed California looks determined to make history and do something.
8: We don't tell folks to get over the Holocaust. We don't tell them to get over you know, the Armenian genocide or the internment of uh, Japanese during World War II. All of those uh, entities were compensated at some level. Uh, this country would not be what it is today if it weren't for the African slave. If California can't get it done, it's gonna be hard on the national level. So I think we are the litmus test
11: America is watching closely how California will go in handing back black owned land and handing out reparations. My next stop is in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in a town still grappling with the legacy of America's worst racial massacre more than a century ago. The city of Tulsa is rich, oil rich. But to this day, there's a deep wealth drop when you cross the rail lines into the north of the city. That's where the Tulsa massacre erased an entire area. It's called Greenwood, but many called it Black Wall Street. Today, a museum testifies to how a once vibrant quarter with black owned shops and businesses promised black wealth until their white neighbors run it down in 1921. As so often, violence was sparked by a rumor that a black boy may have come too close to a white girl. Within hours, armed white men, authorized by the sheriff, attacked Tulsa's Greenwood district. They dropped turpentine bombs from private planes. The attack killed hundreds of people and destroyed rows of businesses and homes. Those who could fled. The community would never recover, and the effects can still be felt today.
12: Facts are facts. The truth of what has happened in places like Tulsa uh, are are manifest in what you see in disproportionate crime rates, disproportionate health rates, disproportionate uh, wealth rates. Uh, And um, we want to be able to inform current leaders and future leaders that these things have had an impact. Now you are armed with information. Go make change.
11: The city has invested in more historical research. It also recently launched a process to hear from Tulsans what they'd like the city to do beyond an apology. Tulsa's mayor, G.T. Bynum, declined our request for an interview. He has so far not committed to any form of reparations. That's why the only remaining survivors of the massacre, all older than 100 years, are taking the city to court. Two years ago, at the age of one hundred and seven, Viola Fletcher told US Congress of how the massacre on May the thirty first, nineteen twenty one destroyed her community.
2: We lost everything that day. Our homes, our churches, our newspapers, our theaters, our lives. Greenwood represented all the best of what was possible for black people in America and for all for all the people. No one cared about us for almost a hundred years.
11: The three remaining survivors have already been turned down by a court once. It ruled that what happened was too long ago for the case to go ahead. I went to see the legal team who are on the second case, which keeps getting delayed by the court.
10: The city and the Chamber of Commerce and the Tulsa regional
12: authority are now trying to get the last three survivors kicked out of the case. Uh, they've been dragging their heels, filing motions. Um, I think the playbook is the same now as it was in 2003, which is waiting for the survivors to die.
11: That neighbourhood of Greenwood has also been subjected to another trauma, this time at the hands of city planners.
12: In the 1970s, they ran a freeway through the middle of it and split the community again, and what was there fell apart.
11: The home these stairs led up to was destroyed decades after the Tulsa massacre as part of the so-called urban renewal program. Starting in the 1960s, black-owned houses in Greenwood were torn down to make way for a highway, a new university campus, new infrastructure, it was argued, that serves all. I'm a realtor. I know where things are, right? It brings tears to my eyes when I think about it on
2: their behalf, because when someone comes and says, yeah, my grandma's hairdressing salon used to be right there, and they're pointing at a freeway overpass, It's very, very saddening,
11: it's very saddening, Um, yeah. The erasure of black entrepreneurship several times over has left Greenwood unable to rebuild itself. Legal scholars see this as a landmark case that shines a spotlight on why black Americans are still so much poorer.
7: There's a narrative that these are just irresponsible people. And, you know, it's too bad that they are not doing well, you know, socially and economically, but it's kind of their fault, right? And also with like what we call the Black Wall Street, these folks, they weren't taking government handouts. They, through their hard
12: work, vision, initiative, creativity, stick to built something incredibly successful. And so I think just having that counter-narrative to what often is you know victim blaming we have in this country is, is powerful.
11: And yet pursuing justice through the courts isn't working. The legal successor of those who actually conducted the violence, killing hundreds and raising Greenwood to the ground, well, that's the city of Tulsa. The legal process there is stuck. A century after the worst racial massacre in US history, Tulsa isn't just a reminder of the cruelty of the past but also the inaction that amounts to indifference in the present. And a century later, the state where it all happened, Oklahoma, is only just beginning to debate whether there should be anything more than an apology. From Tulsa, I head to Providence, Rhode Island. This region was one of the key slave ports of colonial America. By the end of the 18th century, some 1,000 ships arrived here bringing around 100,000 enslaved people. They delivered African men, women, and children into lives of abuse and cultural oppression. Providence's city hall was testimony to the wealth accumulated and passed down those ruling generations. Many leading figures, still regarded as Rhode Island's founding fathers, made their fortunes during this time. Even abolition continued the inequality. Compensation was only paid to slave owners. Much of this was built on the slave trade. And while slave traders themselves usually received compensation for their losses, the people who suffered and died and their descendants received absolutely nothing. One and a half centuries later, the city has decided to take a step towards reparations and put $10 million into a fund.
12: It would take tens of millions of dollars. You can't do it just with 10 million. But yet you don't want to not do anything. So, you know, we were able to get 10 million, which is $10 million more than we had. And I have a housing background, so in terms of generational wealth, most generational wealth in this country is, is, is created by homeownership.
11: Today only half as many black Rhode Islanders own their home as the overall average. Local historian and businessman Keith Stokes is one of the experts who recommended how to use the reparations budget. He wants to seek grants to help black Americans move back to the areas where they should have been able to thrive all this time. So tell us about this area. What did it used to be and what is it today?
12: Well, we're standing at the corners. This is Meeting Street and Cognon Street. In fact, that's the Cognon Street Baptist Church. The Cognon Street Baptist Church evolved from one of the earliest African meeting houses in America from the 17th and 18th century. And one of the great ironies of racialized discrimination is not only the physical subjugation through slavery, but it's removing people of color from the very place where they lived, worked and worshiped.
11: And later, black efforts to buy property were hit with policies like redlining. These set out where you had to live to get help buying a house.
12: Here in the city of Providence, we have a 1935 redline map, and it shows this neighborhood and other neighborhoods which are predominantly low-income and predominantly black were excluded from any access to federal mortgage insurance or any opportunity to own a home and most importantly, build equity in that home. This is not slavery of the 18th century. This is federal, state, city, public policies and practices in the mid-20th century.
11: So again, while the slavery era created a wealth gap, policies that followed deepened this economic divide between blacks and whites. Dozens of towns and cities around the U.S. have admitted that they had policies that actively deepened the economic divide along those ethnic lines. Only a few of them have so far committed to any form of reparations.
12: We really need to address the fundamental narrative and we need to understand that the actions that took place, yeah, not by you and not to me, but those actions that took place 100 years ago, you can draw a straight line between those actions and the wealth disparities between black and white households today.
11: To this day, mostly without realizing, ordinary Americans are surrounded by the wealth created by enslaved people. Both the Capitol and the White House were built using their forced labor. society is still far from recognizing that this inequality persists and that it won't just go away. We've seen three regional attempts at making amends through reparations. The question now is whether that will ever grow into something like a national approach. It's a question left unanswered from the days of the first freed enslaved people one and a half centuries ago. Back then, Frederick Douglass said the answer would show whether America lives up to its stated values. We are here and that this is our country.
12: And the question for the philosophers and the statesmen of the land ought to be.
2: What principles should dictate the policy of the action towards us? We shall neither die out nor be driven out, but shall go with this people. Either as a testimony against them or as an evidence in their favor throughout their generation. That's the legacy of Greenwood, and that's the purpose of where we're standing. Thank you so
8: much. You're welcome.
11: Thank
10: you. We have done so much with so little from so few. We made a way out of no way. But for that to persist in a nation that claims to be about equal protection under the law, that claims to be about fulfilling the promise of the Declaration of Independence, for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, it's it's not been for us. For us, it has been hardship, horror,
7: and hellish moments continuously. I'm Wes Kosova. Today on The Big Take, California seriously explores reparations for African-Americans. For decades, African-American activists and politicians have made the case for reparations to provide some measure of compensation for the legacy of slavery, racism, and discrimination in the U.S. But these efforts haven't gone anywhere. Now California is taking the argument for reparations to the next level. A state task force of economists, public policy experts, and elected officials has written a detailed draft report that attempts to quantify the costs of historical injustice. They calculate it to be as much as $800 billion. The goal of the task force is to recommend to state lawmakers who should be eligible to receive compensation of one kind or another. That big top line number and the potential for payments to some individuals of up to a million dollars or more have gotten a lot of attention, positive and negative. And we'll get into what those numbers mean because there's more to it than that. Part of a reparations plan and the cost wouldn't be for individuals but to address ongoing inequality in things like education and healthcare. Camila Moore is an attorney and Reparatory Justice Scholar and the chair of the task force. I'll talk with her about the challenges of trying to put a dollar figure on injustice.
3: It's been a whirlwind of emotions. It's been very cathartic to hear from those who would be eligible, you know, descendants of slaves, for instance, who are pretty much sharing their stories to us every time we meet, pouring their hearts out about the harms and atrocities they've endured.
7: I also speak with Bloomberg's
5: California
7: Bureau Chief Karen Breslau.
5: Some of this defies numbers and it really speaks to something of a collective atonement.
7: She's written a deeply reported piece about the task force and she's here to tell us how reparations would actually work. Chairperson Moore, let me just start with the most basic question. What is the case for reparations? Why should California pay them?
3: So the case for reparations in the state of California Uh, particularly is about uh, the state taking accountability for its role in perpetuating what we've called the badges and incidents of slavery that still linger on and disproportionately negatively affect African-Americans, primarily those who are descendants of slaves. And so we have um, spelled out in our final report, various different instances of California uh, perpetuating exclusionary public policy or widespread private discrimination as well. And um, that's what the crux of the justification for reparations in the state of California lies. And so how do you
7: decide who should be eligible to receive compensation?
3: So the task force, we debated around the issue of eligibility for over 10 months. And February of 2022 and March, 2022, we finally came to a decision around who should be eligible, particularly for uh, monetary cash payments, Um, and various other forms of reparations. And we decided to base eligibility on lineage, Uh, that being if you're a descendant of a free or an enslaved Black person living in the United States prior to 1900, then you would be eligible rather than a race-based standard. And so it's for people who lived anywhere in the United
7: States, not just California, which of course was not a state that sanctioned slavery.
3: Yeah, it's for um, any person who is a descendant of an enslaved or free black person living in the United States more broadly prior to 1900. Because a lot of black American Californians, uh, you know, our grandparents, great grandparents, they migrated from the South to California. The only part I wanted to note is around California's role in slavery. You know, a lot of people ask why California, you know, we have argued as a task force if we made the claim that California was only free in name. There were over, you know, 2000 black people who were enslaved in the state. Uh, not only that, California uh, implemented or enacted a fugitive slave law that was actually much more aggressive than the federal fugitive slave law. Um, that was in 1852. So that deputized ordinary white citizens to essentially round up free black people to uh, re-enslave them in the South or in some instances in the state of California as well. And so it's one thing
7: to make the argument for reparations, which has been made over the years, in any number of places. And quite another thing to try to figure out how you decide who gets what. How did you go about doing that to put a dollar figure on centuries of injustice?
3: We hired five economists and public policy experts who are at the top of their field to assist us with this question in in terms of how do you calculate um, potential compensation, uh, particularly for these, you know, decades, generations long of human rights violations, quite frankly. And so in our final report, you'll most likely see language acknowledging how it's nearly impossible to put a dollar amount on these human rights violations. But what we decided to do was to utilize these economists and public policy experts to essentially calculate the pure losses of the black community across five different state-sanctioned atrocity areas. The global figure that the task force arrived at, meaning the five economists and public policy experts we hired, were able to calculate almost $800 billion in the total losses in five particular harm areas so housing segregation so part of that 800 billion dollars represents the loss of home ownership value because there was state sanctioned redlining in the state that you know relegated black folks to certain neighborhoods to certain homes health harms there's an eight-year life expectancy gap between white americans and black americans so Some of that $800 billion value of loss is an attempt to quantify um, that life expectancy gap. They were able to gather uh, some evidence to quantify the losses the Black community has faced over, you know, disproportionate uses of eminent domain in Black communities, over policing and mass incarceration, took into account, for instance, loss of earning potentials and things like that. And then the fifth form, which was devaluation of Black businesses. Uh, So taking in that $800 billion amount also takes into account the losses that Black businesses have taken over time. The state task force has not recommended the state pay out $800 billion. And some news outlets have said, we've recommended every Black person get paid $1.2 million. So That's misinformation. The monetary figures, again, just... Uh, represents the pure loss economically speaking of the black community because of us being targeted via exclusionary public policy and widespread private discrimination and so now it's going to be up to the state legislature to read that methodology hopefully endorse it but then it'll be up to them to actually prescribe the actual amount so it could be less than what we arrived at in terms of the loss it could be more. It could be the same. It's, that's a political conversation that's best left to the legislators at this point. And so have you assigned dollar
7: amounts for individuals to claim if they have suffered losses under one or more of these five areas?
3: So we haven't assigned dollar amounts but we have recommended that there be two types of forms of compensation cumulative reparation reparatory compensation and individual compensation so we have uh, recommended that all folks who are eligible uh, receive reparations in the form of compensation but in addition to that those within the eligible class if they can prove, so to speak, direct proof of harm in those five areas, then they should be entitled to additional compensation as well. But the
7: dollar amounts assigned to each of those forms of discrimination are not set out in the report.
3: There are monetary figures in the report, but they aren't dollar amounts that we're recommending per se. They represent the loss of the black community over time based on those particular areas.
7: And so those dollar figures you then think will be used by the legislature to try to come up with compensation amounts that correspond with the different forms of injustice that people suffered. Yes, exactly. And is this something that individuals will have to apply for to say, I was discriminated against in these areas and therefore I am making an application for compensation.
3: So one of the recommendations from the task force were to create a new state agency Tentatively called the California American Freedom Affairs Agency, and that would be the agency where people would essentially sign up to uh, receive direct repertory justice services, including showing their eligibility for um, the programs in general, but also cash payments. We invited expert witnesses around what this agency could look like, like administrative law professors, for example. And we uh, recommended that the agency have a genealogy branch uh, to assist people in showing their eligibility and then also a general eligibility branch for those cash payments. And so that each person would come forward and make
7: a claim and then it would be looked into and sort of investigated to see whether or not the claim was valid?
3: Yes, absolutely.
7: So you've been working on this for quite some time. Um, what's this been like? You've been going around the state. You've been listening to people's stories. You've heard people saying this is a great idea. You've heard vocal opposition. What is it like to head this task force?
3: First, I'd say an honor and a privilege. You know, I went to law school with an express purpose into studying repertory justice on a domestic and international level. So I went to Columbia for my JD, and then I received a Master of Laws in International Criminal Law from the University of Amsterdam. So this was just perfect timing for me in terms of me being able to transfer my wealth of knowledge that I have into this historic process. It's been a whirlwind of emotions. It's been very cathartic to hear from those who would be eligible, you know, descendants of slaves, for instance, who are pretty much sharing their stories to us every time we meet pouring their hearts out about the harms and atrocities they've endured um, over time living in the state of California. You know, it's been interesting getting hate mail as well from folks who aren't very enthusiastic about it. But, you know, it all comes with the territory. So I've been having a great experience overall. (laughs) And so where does it go from here? You've written this report, you're going to
7: deliver it, and then what happens next?
3: So the task force, as you mentioned, uh, we have finalized uh, the report. It will be officially released at our last hearing, which will be on June 29th in Sacramento. After that, the report will be delivered to the legislators and it'll be up to the state legislator, the, the state assembly and the state senate Uh, to, you know, study the report in good faith, meaningfully consult with us if needed, and um, implement our proposals and turn them into actual legislation. And then it will be up to Governor Newsom to sign any reparations legislation into law. Some activists are saying that legislators can introduce reparations legislation as early as fall, winter 2023 or early 2024. And do you think this is going
7: to be successful? Do you think California will approve reparations in one form
3: or another? I do. I already see some conversations online from state legislators who are enthusiastic about even some of the more controversial aspects of the report. So there are legislators who Literally just got elected, so they have some time to be in the legislature, which is a good thing. That are you know enthusiastic about introducing legislation for cash payments for descendants of slaves, and so I think that's a good sign to see very early on, even before the report is finalized, uh, legislators willing to be bold and you know taking aspects of the report that some deem to be the hardest to accomplish. They're already looking into ways to partner with their other elected officials to make it a reality. And then looking further
7: down the road, do you see your effort as a model for other states and maybe even the federal government for national reparations?
3: I definitely see um, to the extent that states and localities uh, would like to also atone for any state or local uh, atrocities Um, i definitely see what the state has done as a model um also in our final report there will be a final recommendation to transmit our final report to congress and to the Biden administration and that was in our interim report but we've kind of beefed up the recommendation to say okay here's our final report you know you can implement full reparations without a comprehensive study because california has done that work for you already and also to the Biden administration. You can create a commission for reparations by executive order committing to full effective reparations with a truncated study period because California has done so much work on this already. So yeah, I'm optimistic that our state has done the work to set precedent for what reparations could look like on a state level and then nationally as well. And then I'll just lastly say, there have been many different people around the world for marginalized communities that have been inspired by the work of our task force and has personally reached out to me, people from you know, Namibia and Africa, Suriname, and South America and so many other places who are inspired and looking to California for this work as well. Chairperson Camila Moore,
7: thanks so much. I appreciate your time. Thank you. After the break, we dig into the details of the task force's recommendations. Now let's bring in my colleague, Karen Breslau. She's Bloomberg's California Bureau Chief, and she's been covering the Reparations Task Force. Karen, over the years, there have been any number of reparations efforts, but California's is different. Can you talk about why that is? So, Wes,
5: there were policies, there were practices, there were laws Uh, that codified discrimination, that contributed really since the day California became a state in 1850, really up until the current day. We're very familiar with some of those having to do with discriminatory application of federal law and federal programs, going back to the New Deal, uh, the GI Bill, urban renewal projects in the 1970s in which black homes and businesses were taken through eminent domain, or devalued or unjustly seized and so there are definitely ways to track and to assign value to the wealth gap they looked not only at wealth gaps but also health gaps they looked at educational gaps they looked at harms affecting black communities in california that go well beyond numbers that don't really lend themselves to monetary compensation and some of those have to do with intergenerational traumas
7: tell us more about this task force how did it
5: come to be
7: and who's in it how does it operate
5: so in the aftermath of george floyd's murder in 2020 um, a then assembly member named shirley weber introduced a bill to establish a reparations task force to look at not only the health, wealth, educational gaps, but also the uh, police practices and differences that led to George Floyd's murder. Shirley Weber has since been elevated to Secretary of State of California, and the task force is made up of a variety of experts. Uh, They tend to be civil rights advocates, uh, attorneys, not surprisingly, economists a couple of members of the current legislature appointed by the governor and the speaker pro tem of the Senate. And they were given a mandate to study this issue for two years and to deliver a report to the legislature uh, by June of this year.
7: Karen, in your reporting, you talked to several people who are on the task force and are involved in this effort. Can you tell us about them?
5: Yes, uh, two in particular. One is Reverend Amos Brown, who uh, is a longtime civil rights advocate in San Francisco and leads the oldest African-American congregation in San Francisco. He was born in Mississippi in 1941, uh, the same year as Emmett Till, not far from Emmett Till. And his political awakening came when Emmett Till was murdered and he saw his photos uh, in Jet Magazine. And he went to the NAACP right there in Jackson, Mississippi, and met Medgar Evers, who was the organization's field director and went on, obviously, to have a tremendous you know, role in the American civil rights movement. Amos Brown, as a young man, was mentored by Medgar Evers. He comes to it from a place of history and incredible personal connection. And he is also the descendant of a, a great-great-grandfather who was enslaved in Mississippi.
7: Let's listen to part of your interview with him.
10: California and San Francisco are not squeaky clean. Even in 1908, Reverend Allen Allensworth tried to establish a community down there near Bakersfield that became known as Allensworth. The water was poisoned. The politicians were able to get The railroad track rerouted to kill the town. So it looks like every time we make progress in spite of what we have been able to achieve, there is this alliance of a movement to say, no, you're not going any further. We're going to stop you. If it means suppressing the vote, if it means unjust police practices. If it means making sure that you don't get equality of opportunity for employment. If it means that you don't get health care. Those who are handicapped, we got measures through Congress. So wherever a particular group or population has been wronged, we made efforts. You know, if a tornado comes through the land and tears up the community, we make funds available to help businesses, we all receive that. None of us live by pulling ourselves up our own bootstraps.
7: And so you've described the various ways that the task force has tried to quantify all the various legacies of racism. How do they go about doing that?
5: Well, let's take an example, home ownership. They can track rates of home ownership through a variety of federal and state data over time. They can look at lending practices. They can look at the actual mechanism of redlining. And so another thing the task force did was to look into historical examples of reparations on very large scales. Germany's reparations to Israel after the Holocaust. More recently, the 9-11 Victims' Compensation Fund. They looked at uh, if you want examples of wrongdoing by the U.S. government, the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. The U.S. government compensated the survivors of the Tuskegee syphilis study on black men by the U.S. Public Health Service, and that continued, if you can believe it, until 1972. So there are definitely uh, historical frameworks here. There's also an entire you know, body of international law and standards set forth by the United Nations, and all of that factored into their report.
7: In your story, you write that after the task force started doing all of this work, they did come up with hard numbers for any number of things. Can you just run through what some of these numbers are that spell out what people are owed?
5: One calculation looked at the statistical value for a year of human life. And they looked at the differences in life expectancy affecting black Californians and came up with a value of $13,619 per statistical year of missing life expectancy. Uh, Another was wealth missing due to lower rates of black home ownership, $148,099. The average devaluation of a black-owned business, $77,000 for each year of disproportionate incarceration factored by race, combining lost wages and freedom, $159,792. What they're doing here is preparing recommendations that are gonna go to the legislature so that the lawmakers can have a frame of reference, can have some data to set up a reparations
7: framework. And so where would that revenue come from? Would they raise taxes? Would it come from specific
5: places? One proposal that a member of the task force made, who's uh, Stephen Bradford, a state senator, is to set aside 0.5% of the state's operating budget into an annuity, which would create about a billion and a half dollars in annual funding. And some of these reparations do not have monetary value attached. Uh, Some include something like an official apology by the state of California or discounted tuition or free tuition to eligible descendants of enslaved people who want to go to the University of California or any public university. Greater healthcare, greater investments in healthcare.
7: What's the public's response been to the idea of reparations in California?
5: It's been very divided, not only by party with Democrats who have an overwhelming majority in the state legislature and also you know, among voters, I think open to the concept, but very fuzzy on the details. And then there are those who are opposed to the concept of reparations, that current generations should essentially pay the tab for generations past. I think we're gonna see a lot of movement in public opinion as this task force report gets studied and discussed in the legislature public opinion can move pretty quickly but both the concept of reparations and the staggering totals are going to give a lot of people pause when
7: you say public opinion is going to move which direction do you anticipate it would move in
5: i think it will move with understanding that reparations doesn't always mean a check We saw that with the Japanese-American internment, those survivors were compensated with $20,000, which could not come close to the suffering and the losses and led to an apology by the U.S. Congress and led to the funding of a number of public education initiatives.
7: When we come back, we hear from another member of the task force. Earlier, we heard Reverend Amos Brown and other members of the task force also told their stories.
5: The other amazing story was Reggie Jones-Sawyer, who's a member of the uh, State Assembly from Los Angeles. And his family came from Arkansas, from Hope, Arkansas. He is related to one of the Little Rock Nine. Karen sat down with the assemblyman. Let's hear part of their conversation.
8: You know, ever since I was a little boy, I used to hear stories about my uncle being one the Little Rock Nine, one of the nine kids that integrated Central High School in 1957. I used to hear stories of him being beaten and kicked, all sorts of disparaging names, just for him to try to get into high school. There's a picture of him standing next to a fence pole and he's by himself and across the street, you can see the angry white mobs yelling at him. One day they forgot to pick him up from school they all got in the car raced down there and he was standing next to this post and they went when it got to him he had spit somebody urinated on him I mean it was pretty bad and we'd ask him what happened and he said that the kids swarmed the white kids just went around them and just called them names Martin Luther King and Reverend Lawson had taught them nonviolence, not to let anybody see you panic and uh, he said in the middle of the crowd this young kid came out and said, hey, leave him alone. He's not doing anything. And he said, and then they dispersed. He said he saw the kid the next day, thanked him and said, wow, you're really, you know, your parents raised you right, that's a really Christian of you. And the kid looked at him, he said, we're atheists. I just did it because it was the right thing to do. The barriers that those nine kids went through, I don't know if I could have gone through all of that with all that I know now, at my age, if I could have gone through that kind of trauma at that age. Um, But I owe them a debt of gratitude. Because if it wasn't for them, I had absolutely no problem of getting into the University of Southern California. And now I'm in the doctoral program at SC. And it's because of them, I was able to fulfill my academic dreams with absolutely no problem whatsoever. And so I'm, I'm standing on their shoulders. And so when this opportunity came up, I realized it's really important that I do everything I can um, to reverse what institutional slavery has done to African Americans, not only in America, but let's start here in California. You know, when we, when we talk about history and try not to repeat history, when we talk about critical race theory, um, which is really about telling the truth of history and what really happened, not what was whitewashed, but what really happened. Uh, and what you'll find is not only were there governors who actively worked to send slaves back to the South here from California, that there were laws that prohibited African Americans from marrying outside their race, that there were laws that were put in place so that we couldn't live in areas that we wanted to, um, that the GI Bill restricted us even though we went to war, fought for this country, and laid our lives down that we didn't have the same opportunities as, as our white counterparts um, to, to the GI Bill and education and things of nature, and that California participated in it just as much as they did in the South. We may be the benchmark, not only for California, on what reparations will be or should be, but the nation and any city or state in this country will then take all this data and use it as the floor, for what they will or will not do in the future. That is an unbelievable responsibility. I don't think it's about paying. It's about reversing the harms that are now placed upon Af- every African American in California. If you can stop redlining and you can do it with, without any financial responsibility, without having to implement any money, I think that, that works just as well. If we're talking about education... Um, if somehow we can make schools equal in the inner cities for, for African-American kids who are performing at a lower level. If we can level that playing field in a way that is not uh, overly burdensome on the, on the uh, educational budget, then l- let's do that. It's more important to have success than to spend money when it comes to mass incarceration. Uh, I have a bill right now where if you close... Two prisons, it's a savings of $230 million a year. What if we could plow that money back into recidivism programs, um, mental health programs, if we would pour it back into trauma-informed care because a lot of kids see things on the street that then get them into the school-to-prison pipeline. Then we'd save $80,000 a year to $100,000 a year incarcerating people, and that's money that we save. Which means that's not an extra burden on us. We're now working on the savings and we're looking at an ROI return on our investment. What if we start looking at it that way? Yes, on the ledger it may look like it's two hundred and thirty one million dollars that we're spending, but we're really not. This is the money we save. What if that two hundred and thirty million dollars turn into we close ten prisons instead of two? How much savings is that over a long period of time that we could say was part of reparations? reducing the amount of people mm-hmm. who are recidivating going back and forth like a turnstile into prison how much money could we save there now now we're talking about a robust system that does look like it's billions and billions of dollars where really, it really is billions and billions of savings everybody's basing everything on money i think changing policy is just as important as the financial remuneration in fact i think if we are to remove some racial disparity barriers, they will go a lot further than cash payment.
7: Karen, do you think ultimately there will be some form of reparations at the end of this long process?
5: I do, Wes. I think it's going to be a range of monetary and non-monetary measures. I think the public apology will come rather soon. I think public education programs will come soon. I think the notion of greater investment in health, access to higher education, into home ownership programs, I think all of that is readily within reach. I think the concept of individual compensation remains distant and I don't expect that for years. Karen, thanks so much for speaking with me today. Thank you, Wes. Thanks
7: for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us questions or comments to bigtake at bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicki Bergolina. Our senior producer is Catherine Fink. Our producers are Mo Barrow and Michael Folero. Rafael Amcili is our engineer. Our original music was composed by Leo Sidrin. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back on Monday with another big take. Have a great weekend.